This is Come and See by Father Ron Baird for February 6th, 2011. The Gospel is taken from the book of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 13 through 20. Pop quiz. How does salt lose its saltiness? Hmm? Exposure to air, what was the other one? Put it in water? Boil it? Time? Actually, none of those things cause salt to lose its salt. If you put a teaspoon of salt in a four-ounce glass of water and you drink it, what have you got? Has it lost its saltiness? Maybe some. But, um, and actually, salt never spoils. It, it's a mineral. It just, you can leave it forever and it'll just be there. Um, it doesn't do anything. That's the reason why in ancient times they used it to cure meat. Because if you put enough salt in meat, nowadays we call it pork rinds and beef jerky, but um, they, uh, it won't ever go bad. I'm not sure they ever digest either, but but it never goes bad. And so salt doesn't lose its saltiness that way. So if you wanted to cause salt to lose its saltiness, what would you do? Hmm? The problem, isn't it? Any, any chemists here? Anybody take a lot of chemistry? And we take any chemistry. <laughs> yeah. There's only one way to cause salt to lose its saltiness. It's an interesting thing. The only way to do it is to so dilute it that you don't notice anymore. If I took that same teaspoon of salt that I talked about putting in four ounces of water and I put it in a gallon of water, would it be as salty? What if I put it in a hundred gallons of water? What if I put it in a thousand gallons of water? <laughs> you have a lot of water, yeah. There comes a point at which, though, it becomes indistinguishable, doesn't it? The way that salt loses its saltiness is when it is diluted by other minerals, other ingredients, other things that will that overwhelm it, um, that will basically dissipate it. Now, Jesus tells us that we are the salt of the world but that if we lose our saltiness, that we too shall be thrown out and trampled underfoot because we will become wasteful. So how do we lose our saltiness, being the salt, the preservative of the gospel? We become deluded by the world. We begin to look at things from a worldly perspective as opposed to from a godly perspective. And as a result, the power of the gospel becomes diluted in us, and people no longer see it in us. Same thing with light. You know, if you put a light under a basket, what happens? You might see some of it. I mean, especially if it was a bushel basket, I thought, you know, it's probably bound to leak out some, but it's not going to light up the room, is it? It's the same kind of principle. And then Jesus goes on to talk about the law. And he says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I don't know what the law and the prophets are. 
Ten Commandments are part of the law. Scriptures, yes. Say it every Sunday in the summary of the law. Um, this is the, the you know, Heroes, you shall love the Lord, you have all your heart, soul, and mind, and strength, you shall love your neighbor. These, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. It's the Old Testament, basically, <clears throat> minus the writings, but eventually they got put in as well. The law and the prophets. Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish them or to do away with them. I have come to fulfill them. And in fact, nothing will be taken from them until they have been fulfilled. Not one thing. Not one jot or tittle is the old King James Version of it. Um, not one dot, not one stroke shall be changed in it, which if you were a scribe was quite significant. And so he tells us that he came to fulfill the law and the prophets. And furthermore, he tells us that unless our righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, and you remember the Pharisees, they were the people who were really uptight about keeping every single part of the law and the prophets. They were obsessed by it. He says, unless we exceed their righteousness, we can't even enter the kingdom of heaven. That's a problem, isn't it? Has anybody here been able to keep all of the law and the prophets? Problematic. And so we begin to look for solutions. One solution is don't read them. That way you won't know what's in them and you don't have to worry about it, right? There's a solution. Um, there are lots of other ideas you could have about that too, but which is like, don't ever learn how to drive a car, just get behind the wheel of one and start driving. You don't need to learn all those rules. Um, you know, you go play football, you don't need to learn how to play the game. Um, there are lots of kinds of things we could do and ignore. Usually they don't turn out to be, you know, very good for us, but, but oftentimes that's our solution is that ignorance is the best policy. On the other hand, another solution would be to Try to understand them, to reinterpret them, to um, try to have them make sense in our own context. You, know, you hear a lot about that. Well, what does that mean? And, and you actually hear there's a huge debate going on in the world now, in the Christian world, about the Scriptures. You know, And people will say, well, you know, everybody obeys parts of the Bible, but not all of the Bible. Anybody here heard that? Which part do you all think we ought to obey? God's part? Yeah. Or, I like the New Testament, I don't like the Old Testament. You know, that, that kind of thing. And yet Jesus said, not one jot, not one tittle will pass away until all of it has been fulfilled. So he didn't really let us off the hook with that, does he? And then, you know, you have people say, well, why is it that, that some people are so uptight about some parts, like, you know, morality things, and other people are not at all uptight about other things in the Bible, like, you know, should you have, um, should you eat shellfish? So, you know, in Leviticus it says that you shall not eat shellfish or any animal with cloven hooves and lots of other things. Why is it that that's okay, and 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 but you know it's not okay to be divorced and remarried? Why are these things, you know, sometimes okay and others not? Who gets to pick and choose? And what they would say is that, well, obviously the church decides, well, that one still works, this one doesn't still work. 
you know, and we sort of go through and separate them out. Lucky you, you have brilliant people like me to tell you what is right and wrong. Gee, how good can it get? Yeah, really. <laughs> she rolled her eyes like that too. Um, that doesn't seem to work very well, does it? If, if we were to do that, then how would we ever know what was really from God and what was just really what you know worked best for human beings? You know, or the people in charge, anyway. You know, how do we know it's not just crowd control? We won't. And yet we have this dichotomy going on. Now, what's fascinating about it is that if, if you read the Scriptures, you begin to understand why it is that we can eat shellfish, why it is that we can eat meat from animals with cloven hooves, you know, why it is that we can wear fabrics that have been um, made of more than one type of material, why it is that we can eat, you know, um, um, meats that are prepared in milk, you know, with milk, which is also an abomination. Why is it that all of those things are now okay and the others aren't? Well, very simply, you need to go to the book of Acts, read chapter 15 of the book of Acts, and you will find that this was a dilemma for the church. Because all of a sudden they have all these Gentiles who are coming into the church and wanting to be Christians, except that they had to be Jewish. And to be Jewish, first of all, they said you've got to be circumcised. The adult males weren't keen on that concept. Women thought it was not necessarily a bad idea, but the males didn't like it at all. And you have to eat kosher food. Anybody here ever eaten kosher? What do you think? Blah! <laughs> time I've ever eaten tough fish was in Israel. <laughs> it amazes me how they can manage to drain so much of the juices out of, out of any kind of meat that it has the taste of shoe leather, no matter what, even fish. I mean, have you ever had tough fish? It's hard to make fish tough. You've got to work at it. And so why is it that the church was able in Acts then to decide that, well, you must keep the moral law, but you must not, you don't have to keep the cultic law, which is what those other things are. Well, to do that, you have to understand what they're about. Moral law is about what? What's right and what's wrong? But how, I mean, practically, what's it about? Hmm? How we live with who? Each other. How we treat other people, how they treat us, how we interact, what our relationships are like. Um, cultic law is about what? How to praise God and avoid idolatry? Well, that goes back to his almost moral law in some ways, though, because you could say that's about that relational thing between us. In some ways it does, but... What's the difference? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Probably not. 
See, it's interesting because that's what we do, because, but immediately we automatically move it back into the relational thing. Actually, the cultic law had a very specific purpose, which in part did that, but, but more importantly did something very distinctive. It said, these are my people. They are not like no other. They belong to God. So that particularly if you were male, it became really obvious, right? Because you were circumcised, so obviously you were different. Not in that time. Well, that would depend on the Pharaoh at the time. They also used it as a way of conquering people. But even more so, the fact that you couldn't eat but specific foods, you couldn't have other idols, you couldn't do this, you couldn't do that, you had to have, um, you couldn't do anything on the Sabbath, um, you had to keep the Sabbath holy, all of those things had to do with setting apart Israel to demonstrate to the world that these are God's chosen people. And it's done that. I mean, sometimes for the good, sometimes for the ill. I mean, a lot of the most horrible things in history have happened because of cultic laws and rituals, uh, things like the Holocaust, because they were set apart. People found them very easy to judge and to make inferior and to blame because they were different than other people because they were different. We like to blame people who are different. It makes it easier if somehow or other they are other than what we understand. So how does all that then mean that, well, why is it that we don't have to follow that? Are we not God's chosen people anymore? I mean, do we not, does that become unnecessary? Well, no, if you go back to Acts, you begin to understand why it is that they said they must keep the moral law, but they don't have to keep the cultic law. And it actually becomes very simple because Jesus came to do what? Fulfill the law. Fulfill it. What does it mean to fulfill something? Complete it. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. He is the one who has truly become God's person, isn't he? Who truly is the one who is obedient to the Father in everything that he does and everything that he says. So does that let us off the hook? No, not exactly. What it does do is tell us that there is now a way that we can exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. We and die to ourselves and live for Christ. To allow Christ to live in and through us. To do nothing but what Christ gives us to say, or to do and to say nothing but what Christ gives us to say. And when we <clears throat> begin to live as one with Christ, then we echo those words that Paul had in the epistle today, which said, um, we know the mind of Christ. Remember those words? We know the mind of Christ. We are the mind of Christ. Not because in and of ourselves we're brilliant, but because we've subverted our own will to his will. And we allow him to decide and not ourselves. 
So why is it then that you don't have to fulfill the purpose of the cultic things? Well, because Jesus is the fulfillment of the cultic things. Why is it that we don't have to sacrifice goats in the temple anymore? Because Jesus is the perfect sacrifice for the sins of the world. Why is it that we don't have to, you know, obey all of these rules? Remember Jesus, you know, picking grain on the, on the Sabbath and they were throwing a fit about? Why is all those things true? Because Jesus has already fulfilled those things. Would anyone doubt that even amongst the Jews that they thought this guy's different? That he stands apart? Now they may see him as a prophet, as a, uh, a follower of God, or they may see him as a heretic, but nobody believed that he was just some average Joe. Everybody knew that there was something different about this man Jesus. And why is it then that we do have to fulfill the moral law? Well, because if we have subverted our will to God's will, if we do nothing but what Jesus gives us to do and say nothing but what Jesus gives us to say, then how will we treat one another? The way Jesus and God treat us. With love, forgiveness, mercy, kindness, compassion, support, encouragement, exhortation, rebuke. I mean, all of those things come in, but judgmentalism doesn't seem to be real high on his list, does it? And so, if we were to submit ourselves to Christ and allow Christ to live in us, then we will fulfill the moral law. Not because somehow or other, oh, this is the special law that we now keep and the other one we don't worry about, but because that one has been fulfilled and this one is part of who we are. You see, that's why Paul is able to say very clearly that, that the law has no hold over us. We don't have to obey the law anymore. We now don't obey a written testimony of what should and should not be done. We now listen to who? Jesus. And we do that which Jesus would give us to do. And we say that which Jesus would give us to say. And to the extent that we do that, we have exceeded all righteousness. We have become the true perfection of God. And that's where the dilemma in Christianity is really set up, isn't it? Is that typically what you see is from the pulpit, from you know, people outside the pulpit, is, is that there's a sort of hypocritical religion out there that decides what the rules are, <clears throat> and it varies according to sect, and that they then judge people who don't live by those rules as being good or bad. And unfortunately, oftentimes they're right. That's not the gospel. The gospel isn't about the rules at all. The gospel is about dying to yourself and living in Christ. Because honestly, if, if I truly have died to myself, I don't have to look up the rules, do I? I just do whatever the Lord gives me to do. If I have died to myself, do I need to worry about what this says about this or what that says about that or how to go about doing it. Only to the extent that I want to know the Lord to learn about Him, but I don't have to memorize a rule book or figure out whether or not this shellfish is edible or not. 
now it becomes all about living for the reason that God created me. That's why Jesus came into the world to die for our sins, was so that we could finally do that again. So that we could live out the lives that we were meant to live. And when we boil it down to being about law, about rules, and telling people what to do or not to do, then we've missed the boat. And when we boil it down to rationalism and saying, well, this makes sense in this case, but not in this case, and and sort of picking and choosing, then we miss the boat again. Because it's not about, you know, trying to figure out what makes sense. Because who ultimately does it make sense to if you're going to do it? And for you to do something, who's it have to make sense to? Me, yeah. See, that again is, is missing the entire point. The entire point of Christianity is to die to yourself and to live for Christ and to allow Christ to live in and through you. And if Christians would spend more of their time worrying about how do I do that? How do I focus my mind and my thoughts and everything on what it is that Jesus wants from me? And less time on what is the right thing to do it would be amazing the changes that would come about in our behavior and about how we would treat one another. And in many ways, we would be set apart. We would be ridiculed and called names. Some people would say we're holy and blessed. I mean, we get up, but in reality, we are none of those things. We are Christians, followers of the one true and living God. It's the one thing that has separated Christianity <clears throat> all of this time from all other religions of the world is that we're not about rules and regulations. We're not about philosophies or ethics. What we are really about is a relationship, a relationship with the creator who made us and sustains us, a relationship with the creator who wants to help us to live into what it is that he made us to be so that we might be to one another that which he intended when he created us. And so I want to challenge you this week as you go out and you're facing those dilemmas about what you should do and what you shouldn't do. Should you um, say bad things about the Packers or the Steelers, depending on who you're rooting for? All those sorts of things. Either side. Or your boss or anybody. Stop for a moment and say, Lord, I don't want to do what I think is right. I want to do what you think is right. Give me the words. Show me what it is that you would have me to do. Because that is the work of a Christian. And it's amazing that when we finally submit ourselves to his will and practice it over and over and over again, because one of the big problems with it is that you do it and then five minutes later you forget to do it the next time. It's almost like you know, trying to teach a teenager to brush their teeth. You know, I always tell Judy, the one thing about teenagers, you don't have to worry about brushing their teeth. They always brush their teeth when they discover the opposite sex. Prior to that, they may remember it, they may not, who knows. I mean, you're con- go back up and brush them again. I mean, it's a constant thing. But it's not because it's a rule at that point, is it? You know, if you have a 
teenage boy who's 14 who's discovered girls and he suddenly starts brushing his teeth four and five times a day. Why is he doing it? Because, oh, it's better for dental hygiene. Do you think? Hmm? Go with it. Why, does, why is he doing it, though? Because there are girls out there, and I don't want to turn them off. He does it because it's in his heart now, doesn't he? Well, that's really kind of what we need to be. We need to be people who do things, not because somehow or other somebody told us that was the right thing to do, but because it's in our heart to do it. And the only way to do that is to make a conscious decision every day, every hour, every moment that my will has been submitted to the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is living in him and allowing him to live through me that I will truly find what I've been looking for. So when you go out, I want to challenge you, begin to think about that. Count. I mean, you know, keep a record. You don't have to tell me. I'm not going to shoot a report or anything. But keep a record. How are you doing? Is it happening? Are you paying attention? Or through the week ahead, did you just get back to business as usual? If you wonder why the world's messed up, it doesn't take a whole lot to figure it out. You want to figure out how the world gets to be what God meant for it to be. It doesn't take a whole lot to figure it out. It does take a spiritual wisdom to be able to hear the voice of a good shepherd. Amen. You have been listening to Come and See by Father Ron Baird. Come and See is a production of St. Andrew's Church in Lewis Center, Ohio. St. Andrew's is also available online at www.standrewspolaris.org. Please join us again when we invite you to Come and see.